Hi, welcome to Inclusion at Work. I'm your host, Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Artemis Joukowsky, co-founder of No Limits Media, entrepreneur, filmmaker, venture capitalist, author, and Paralympian. Welcome, Artemis. We've been meeting this way, except not electronically, for about 21 years. So it's good to have you with us. Can you take our listeners back to a very important moment in your life when you were around 10 or 11 years old and living in Hong Kong with your parents and was part of the Hong Kong All-Star Little League team? And tell us what happened. Well, I started to fall down. I started to miss the ball. I was a very good baseball player. And I could not do what I was trained to do. And my career as a young baseball player was in question whether I could maintain my ability to hit the ball and and catch the ball. I started to struggle and fall down. And many of the friends and coaches I had thought I just was either clumsy or losing interest. And uh, the opposite was true. I was frustrated with myself and and feeling like my body wasn't performing well. And then our family moved to New York City, where I continued playing baseball, uh, but not at the quite the the same level of play. And as as it turned out, when I was 14, I went to a neurological doctor at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And after seven days of of um, you know neurologic exams and electromyographies and biopsies. They discovered I had a juvenile form of ALS, and now it's called spinal muscular atrophy, type 3. Most people with SMA uh, die before they're two years old. That's a type 1. Those who get type 2 in their early, early childhood um, are required to live with uh, oxygen tanks and in a wheelchair. And I was very lucky that I had a mild form of SMA, but for me, I couldn't play baseball anymore. I couldn't run anymore. And then when that diagnosis occurred, my coaches and friends said, oh, I'm so sorry. We thought you weren't trying. Now we know that you couldn't do it because of your muscles becoming weak. For me, my muscles from my neck down to my ankles um, are severely um, uh, atrophied. Uh, in some parts, 60% of the muscle mass is gone. Um, I will one day die from this disease, but not until I've lived a long, wonderful life, thank goodness. Uh, most people with this disease, as I said, die before the age of two. And the severity is related to how many SMN proteins you have on the fifth chromosome. And I've had the fun over my life to be a research guinea pig, to devote myself to finding a cure, to understanding the dynamics of this disease within a family group, like my mom, my dad were carriers of the disease. I got it, my sister and brother didn't get it, but they have a similar genetic structure. I am a carrier by having the disease and all my children are carriers as a result. And we have identified what proteins uh, need to be augmented to save a life. And so now I'm having the fun of being in the research protocols to find a cure. 
to this disease. And the implications of finding a cure are not just good for SMA, but for every other neurological disease. Uh, and I'm just thrilled to be part of that and had the fun of making a film called The Genetics of Hope, which really explores what it feels like to be a guinea pig and what it feels like to be part of that research process. Um, and you often do feel like uh, you're taking risks uh, for the sake of science. But in my case, it was just like playing baseball. I just put my heart into it and I wanted, you know, to make a difference. And really, I, I think of myself um, almost primarily in this way of finding a cure that, that really that's my devotion, that my life should be meaningful to the rest of humanity, that in helping to find a cure, we can really cure not just this disease, but many others like it. Wasn't your family involved in funding one of the new drugs that's on the market that has had a dramatic impact on the horrendous impact that the disease has on infants? Mortality is extremely high. Yeah, my family started a supporting research that originally identified the missing protein in the blood that could be identified as the proteins that support the muscles, both in the lungs and the arms and legs. And by identifying that protein called the SMN protein, science was able to determine how many proteins each person had. And I have the minimum proteins to be alive. Most people have more proteins, which is why their muscles perform better. But over time, these proteins die in everyone. That's why we die. And really one of the most exciting parts of this research is if we find a way to reinforce those proteins, we might be able to elongate life longer than our natural proteins can live. And so that research was funded uh, for about 10 years by many foundations, my family being one of the groups that funded that. But the more important part is that we gave our bodies to science. And if you compare my brother and I, he and I have the same genetic structure, but he has more copies of these proteins than I do, which is just the luck of the draw because it's an autosomal recessive disease. You get good copies and bad copies from both parents. He got more of the good copies from my mom and dad than I did, so I expressed the disease. He did not. And now his genetic structure is at NIH as an example of the, mm. it's called the Misha gene where they can identify within a family group why some people get more of these proteins than others. And that led to a series of cures uh, for the disease that are still ongoing. It's not a 100% cure. The first was called Spinraza, and that was developed by um, Biogen. And there are others down the, down the pike that are coming to really address the issue of this deleted protein. When you got the bad news, how did you feel and, and how did your parents react? Because I think you told me at that point, they really thought it was a death sentence, yeah. that you wouldn't live past 40. And that's really a difficult thing for a 14-year-old to handle and for parents to deal with. Right. Well, I was devastated. I had no idea what my future would be like. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt very alone and um, 
sorry for myself. I was pretty sad. I, I, I did feel it was a death sentence. I felt like my parents felt like it was a death sentence. And really, it was a period of my life where I had to make a choice to stand up for myself, to believe in myself in spite of the disease. And really, it was my grandmother, Martha Sharp Kogan, who came into my office, my, my, uh, my hospital bedroom and said, no more feeling sorry for yourself. We're going to go help other people. And it changed my life that I could help other people in spite of my struggle, that I could be a positive force through my courage and determination to not let the disease kill me. And I devoted the rest of my life since 14 years old to finding a cure. But it was a hard process of shifting from being a victim of the disease to I can make a difference, I can devote myself to a cure, and I can help other people. The first thing I did was organize a support group for families and individuals around my disease, and that support group still exists to this day. And the other thing is I put myself into the research and learned what, what we can do with the information we have to really bring a cure to this disease. Were you at that time able to see what you've talked about, the gift of the disability? Yeah, the notion of a gift in a disability is that you realize that the gift of life is that you are still alive, that you can make meaning out of your life, uh, out of uh, struggles or pain or, or weaknesses. Um, and really the meaning of life is love and the meaning of life is living outside yourself and loving others and being in love with life. And that process took a long time and, and it still goes on at 60 years old. I still am learning the lesson of love and the lesson of putting your heart and soul into something bigger than yourself. Isn't that part of what you've talked about that it also forces you to become a problem solver, to right. reach out to other people so that you can accomplish some of the things you want to accomplish. I mean, there are benefits that don't appear. You know, when you're 14 years old, you're not going to be able to absorb all the so-called benefits. But as you've lived your life, you've been able to see that in some ways it's given you a, an edge over other people who are just living their life, don't have to reflect Absolutely. on it. Yeah, I think every disability that anyone is challenged by can become a gift. It's a choice. And the choice is to, instead of feel sorry for yourself, instead of see the limitations from your gift, from your disease, to see what is the opportunity for learning. And for me, the learning was how to take care of my body. Uh, and, and I've learned to do that over all those years. Um, I use a wheelchair part of the time now, so I prevent me from falling. I used to fall quite a bit, once or twice a week. Now I don't fall at all. Uh, I exercise every day in a warm pool. I'm very selective in terms of how I exercise and use my body because I probably only have about 30% of the muscle strength to, to do things like walking and, 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 and doing things physically. But I think the gift for me is that realization that your disease is a gift of life. 
that your disease is an opportunity to be more intimate with yourself and to be more intimate with others, to ask for help, to design a life where people are devoted to you and you're devoted to them, where your interconnections make your struggle um, uh, a struggle of meaning and intimacy, not a struggle of self-pity and, and, and why me kind of conversation. And I have to say, uh, when I travel, uh, I, I always feel like I'm in the arms of st strangers, that the strangers always help me. I never feel like I'm going to be abandoned. I never feel like I'm going to be in trouble. I always feel like there's someone out there who wants to help me, and I want to help them. And maybe I can help them in a way that, that they need, uh, let's say, more of a personal issue, and they can help me in more of a physical issue to, to get through. When we did this book on the gift, Larry, we really talked about these incredible stories of people like Diane Swank, who has dyslexia and has used her dyslexia to be one of the greatest economists in the world. Many entrepreneurs who are successful have learning disabilities, and the reason they went outside the box to create their companies was because they needed to create an environment that worked for them. I have both dyslexia and ADHD, so I'm an entrepreneur. I love dealing with many different companies and many different projects. I'm not very good at focusing on one or two things for long periods of time. So I've designed a life around my disabilities, around my challenges, and made them into a gift, made them into my advantage in being a successful investor, entrepreneur, and humanitarian. Let's talk a little bit about your grandmother who came into the hospital bed uh, and made sure you weren't going to stay there uh, because you wound up doing a film about her and her, your grandfather. It'd be interesting to the listeners to know more about your grandmother. Well, my grandparents were Unitarians from Wellesley, Massachusetts, who watched <laughs> what was going on in Europe and organized in their, in their Unitarian church a support group around Czechoslovakia. And they called it the Rape of Czechoslovakia. And they wanted to do something to stop Hitler's destruction of not just the Jewish communities, the, the, um, the gypsies, but their oppression of the Czech people. So in 1939, they were asked by the Unitarian Church to go to Czechoslovakia and support the church activity in Prague to both feed people who were refugees, but more importantly, to help people escape. And little did they know that they would be involved in the rescue of thousands of Jews and liberals from the Holocaust. Uh, this is 1939 to 1940. And then in 1940, they returned again to Europe, this time Southern France and helped um, about three or 400 Jews escape over the Pyrenees into Spain and then from Lisbon uh, on boats to wherever they could get people out, to Cuba, to America, to South America, to Africa. Uh, and this is like a Casablanca story in real life. And my grandmother and grandfather worked together, two parts of a tremendous team. She, the humanitarian social worker, he, the more Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School kind of um, 
organizer financier of these rescues. And now they are honored for that work at Yad Vashem in Israel. They are of 26,000 righteous among nations. They're just five Americans, and they are two of the five Americans honored by the state of Israel for risking their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Tell how you learned about this. Yeah, well, I was, it was at that same period that I was diagnosed with my disease. Uh, ninth grade, I was given an assignment to interview someone of moral courage. I went home and I said, Mom, what is moral courage? And who should I interview? And she said, well, go talk to your grandmother. She did some cool things during World War II. And little did I know, my grandmother was defying the Gestapo, was working in the underground with my grandfather to rescue people. At this point, my grandmother and grandfather had been divorced and remarried other people. And so the new husband and new wife, um, as much as they were proud of their, their partner's work, were not focused on what they did with the other husband or the other wife. So much of the story was told individually. And um, I wrote my paper in ninth grade and it was the only A I ever got in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and really one of the proudest moments of my life to learn about my grandmother's work. And it was during this time, as, as I said, that I was diagnosed with my disease. So then suddenly she played a very important role in my reinterpretation of my disease, as well as what any of us can do to stand up to hatred, what any of us can do to stand up to bigotry and prejudice. And I started a journey with her to re-evaluate my life, to make commitments in my life, to help others just like she had. And, um, you know, I'm very proud to, to be her grandson and to have been so close to her. It led to uh, 1999 when she died to archive all her papers with the U.S. Holocaust Museum and over time to make a film with Ken Burns called Defying the Nazis that we made with No Limits Media. No Limits Media was the production partner of our film. Uh, now the film has been seen millions of times around the world. There's a leading curriculum with facing history and ourselves. I wrote a book called Defying the Nazis, which is the, the historical story of what my grandparents did, why they went, what they did. And then when my grandparents divorced and remarried, each of them lived extraordinary lives after that period as well. My grandmother became a passionate supporter of Israel and Zionism, but Zionism within the context of cooperation between Jews, Arabs, and Christians. Um, and my grandfather became a passionate minister around the, social, uh, the uh, civil rights movement. Uh, he was one of the very first white ministers in Chicago to speak about how can we have a Christianity that prejudices against people of different color? How can we be a Christian faith of loving your brother when we prejudice against people who are African-American. And he really challenged in 1945, 1946, the whole institutional structure of, of racism within the Christian tradition that was clearly evidenced in America. Talk a little bit about how long it took you to do this film. I think all human beings never want to give up. Uh, they just need the courage and support 
Uh, it's never something you can do alone. You need a community. Um, that's important. So I had a wonderfully close uh, group of friends and, and family members who supported me throughout these many, many years. My father in particular really believed in me and supported my visions. But it took me since the ninth grade until 2016 to finish the film. Uh, I didn't know in the ninth grade that I would make a film, but I started to interview my grandmother and then later my grandfather and build an archive of my grandparents. Now that archive is housed at Harvard University, Brown University, and the US Holocaust Museum in DC. And we started with 50 to 100 papers. Now it's up to 200,000 papers oh, that show <laughs> actually the rescue of people uh, from the Holocaust that my grandparents were a part of. And it includes the Quaker papers uh, that show the Quakers' participation in the rescues with the Unitarians. It shows all the different faith traditions, including Catholics and Jewish groups that supported my grandparents' work to get people out. So really, it's a, it's a celebration uh, today of interfaith rescue. And what does it take for a non-Christian to support a Christian, for a Jew to support a a Muslim, like what we can do today to use Martha and Wastel's example to rescue innocent people who are being prejudiced in any context. But the film was released on PBS in 2016 after more than 40 years of, of research and work. My book was released that same year. So the book, the film and the curriculum all came out in 2016. The curriculum is now in 50,000 schools around the world. Over a million children in middle and high school have learned the story of the Sharps. It happens, continues every day. You can get the film, by the way, on Amazon, and you can also see the film on, on PBS. The other wonderful thing is writing this book. It took me 20 years. I worked with many historians to validate the story, um, to actually recount my grandparents' story accurately because by the time I interviewed them, they were in their 80s and didn't remember all the facts uh, themselves. So we had to go back and uh, not just produce the evidence, but through the archives, find the evidence. And through that process, we hired a private detective um, and, and, and went through the names of people my grandmother had kept. And we found over a thousand families that they helped to rescue. Um, directly or indirectly. Uh, directly means that they actually took them out themselves on a train or a boat. Um, and that probably was about 150 people they directly rescued. And then about eight to 900 others they helped indirectly rescue, meaning they funded their trip over the Pyrenees or they got them on a train to Genoa or they rescued them through the coal mines from the Czech Republic into Poland, and then, you know, help someone else get them. What, what my book shows and what the film shows is that really rescue was never done as an individual act. It was done as a collaborative act between many different people. And if you all know the story of Nicholas Winton, who organized the Kinder Transport, there's a part of our film that shows Martha uh, bringing papers to the airport when Nicholas Winton is physically in Prague, taking children from Prague to London. So these stories are all intertwined and integrated, and my book and film 
and curriculum that No Limits Media helped to produce show that interconnection. And it's the same metaphor for the disability community. We, we learn as disabled people that, that we can't live alone, that we need support, but once given some support, we can thrive. And we have so many gifts. And really, the whole point of our work now with No Limits Media 20 years later is what's called inclusion at work, which is really about increasing the employment of people with disabilities. And that is um, really our next big struggle as a, as a human rights, social rights um, uh, movement is to help people with disabilities become their best in the world we live in today. And that means giving them a chance to, to work. People with disabilities are very loyal to their employers. They, they work hard. Uh, and with COVID, they have an advantage that they work at home rather than travel. And that really is a win-win uh, for this moment in world history. So our, our goal is to increase that employment level. This is the kind of thing my grandmother would have been thrilled to support in terms of her own understanding of disability and her support of me. Uh, talk about how enrolled Ken Burns. This was an unusual kind of participation for him since yep. he, he does these epics, you know, 19 parts of the Vietnam War. This was just like a small film. And yet he did get involved and he brought Tom Hanks in to right. read the letters that your grandfather wrote to your grandmother, which was really very touching to, to yeah. hear the uh, intimacy of their relationship expressed and, and also the sadness he was feeling as their marriage unraveled in part because your grandmother could no longer be the uh, housewife to a Unitarian minister after this experience. And, she, you know, she was an extraordinary woman and she had to express that even though that was in uh, the mid 1940s, you know, when it was very difficult for a woman to become independent. Well, Ken Burns went to Hampshire College where I went to college. He was 10 years earlier than me. And I used to go home and explain to my mother that, you know, she would say, why are you at this, uh, you know, super, uh, innovative kind of college. Why aren't you at Brown or why aren't you at Columbia where I had gone to school before? And I said, you know, I want to be like Ken Burns. And uh, at that point, Ken Burns's film on the Civil War had not been, been, been very well received by the public. And he was becoming to articulate his view of, of, of American history and world history from his films. Ken Burns does two kinds of films, as you said, the epic films, but he also does biographies. And what appealed to him about this biography is that, A, no one had ever heard of my grandparents. Um, he wanted, the moment he saw a cut of my film, to help me get it on to PBS. Uh, and because we'd gone to the same college, at every reunion, I would go up to Ken and say, hey, Ken, would you look at my new cut of my new film? <laughs> He would say, okay, and, you know, there were a hundred other people also giving him films, and he was very kind to see my film when it was ready. It was called Two Who Dared, and he said, you know, it's a beautiful film. I'll help you get on PBS, um, and uh, I'd love to help you, and so that evolved into a relationship where we would work on the weekends together, and I don't think he expected to be my co-director. I don't think he expected 
to help produce the film, but over a three-year period of time, we took my film, To Who Dared, and reinvented it into defying the Nazis. And then PBS saw the film, and Ken, of course, said, I think this is for prime time. And it came out at a prime time fall time frame, uh, September 20th, 2016, on all 360 PBS stations, and really around the world. Uh, it garnered uh, at least 4 million people to watch it that night. Uh, it now has been repeated many, many times on PBS, and then Netflix picked it up. And for five years, we translated the film into seven languages and showed it all over the world. And now you can find it on Amazon. The thing that Ken brought, besides changing our main male lead uh, uh, to Tom Hanks, which was, of course, a great boon. I mean, it was an honor for me to have Tom Hanks be my grandfather. Really, what Ken did is he elevated the story. Uh, when I put out To Who Dared, we probably had an audience of 50,000 people over four years. When he put out Defying the Nazis, we had an audience of millions of people. So really, he put his name on the film. He helped direct the film with me. He reinvented the film with me. All those acts uh, created a, um, a tremendous following of the story. And I think even the Unitarians, who knew little about my grandparents, began to show the film in their churches. We started to do interfaith screenings with synagogues and Unitarian and Catholic churches. And the film, you know, had a life of its own uh, because of that Ken Burns effect. And one of the things that's also a pleasure is that I was able to be mentored by Ken for those three years in becoming a filmmaker. Now I've made over 15 films, um, working both with uh, filmmakers of note uh, and also startup type films. Uh, I've just finished a four-part series on Cuba. I've, I've also done a film called Genetics of Hope, I'm working on a few very exciting projects. I'm creating a hologram of one of the children that my grandmother rescued. Her name is Amalie. Um, so, you know, my career has grown as a result of this project with Ken, and he's become a, a very good friend as a result of this as well. Um, and both of us have taken that passion for our alma mater, uh, Hampshire College, and helped with Hampshire and developing a better um, financial basis for that school to survive. Possibly part of uh, your interest in this area is from your Hampshire experience, since it's in a very rural part of uh, Massachusetts, is your involvement with the environment and some of the companies you started to deal with uh, some of our environmental issues. Yeah, I studied climate change in 1981. The professors we had at Hampshire were already seeing evidence that climate was changing. And then, of course, when The Inconvenient Truth came out by Al Gore, we had national, international knowledge of this problem. But really, from 1981 to 1985, I was a student at Hampshire. I later got my master's degree at Goddard College. And my focus was personal empowerment and the environment. 
and living an environment in a new way. I taught a course called Sense of Self in the Wilderness, which is really about how we define ourselves in relation to nature. And one of the big discoveries for me was to real, realize that we are nature, that nature is not out there, that we are nature. And you learn this from writers like Alan Watts, um, and you read this from the, you know, from the Native American writers that we read, but also Aldo Leopold and John Muir and Rachel Carson. These are the, the writers we studied at Hampshire. And then out of Hampshire, I've created about 100 companies, both directly and indirectly, many around the environment. The most successful was called Econergy. Econergy was a re renewable energy developer. I, I created with my, my college friend, Tom Stoner. That company specifically worked in South America with solar and hydro projects. We later went public and the London Stock Exchange. And now the company's owned by EDF Suez, which is one of the largest energy companies in the world. Um, we started also a company called Highland Energy. My newest company with Tom Stoner is called Intelligent, Intelligent with an E. Intelligent has a simple ratio in their business model where they measure the amount of carbon you use relative to the revenue the company produces. So the more carbon per revenue, the lower your score. The least carbon you use per revenue, the higher your score. And now we're starting to talk to both financial institutions. We have products with companies like Factset, um, Credit Suisse, um, SockGen, to create annuity projects that allow investors to make money without burning carbon fuels. And that's really the point. And through this patented system that was developed by one of our college uh, classmates, David Schimmel from NASA, he's part of the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, he came up with taking the climate model that, we, that, the, that Al Gore presented to the UN and the UN has adopted through the work with MIT, taking that climate model and put a financial calculator on that model. Huh. So through looking at the environment and what's happening in the environment, we could then have a financial calculator that shows us how we have to change our, our structure of use of carbon toward revenue so we can avoid worse situations with climate change. It's not gonna reverse climate change, but we can make this a lot less dangerous for our future generations by simply reducing the carbon we produce for all the reasons we do, whether it's driving a car, running a factory, the real, the real place we need success is in China, in India, and the U.S. Those three countries are the biggest polluters, and those three countries need to see the opportunity that, that investing in the environment is really preserving our capacity as humans to live on the earth. And that I all learned at Hampshire College. One more area that we have worked on together, which is the Paralympics. Artemis and I did a book called uh, Raising the Bar, which was really the first sports illustrated quality photography of Paralympic athletes. This is 20 years ago. And those photographs wound up at the United Nations, a photographic exhibit. And uh, I was very pleased, as I'm sure he was, in this past summer's coverage of the Paralympic Games 
Uh, they were finally given equality in terms of the amount of time that was devoted to the Paralympics and also to the enthusiasm and energy of the announcers and the profiles of the athletes themselves uh, was such a dramatic uh, impact. Uh, so I think we're both really proud of the book and the exhibit. And also we supported WGBH, uh, a documentary about the ice hockey team, the Paralympic ice hockey team in Sochi, Russia, and also uh, really at that time, which was 2012, I believe, uh, GBH and PBS covered the London Paralympics and there was no really other coverage. So talk about where you are. You're once again engaged in the Paralympics as an athlete this time. Yes. Uh, I believe you were in the past and, and now you're going out and uh, hitting a ping pong ball. That's right. Yeah, well, it all starts really in, in our book with a remarkable Jewish refugee doctor who got to England and he decided because he saw all these people in, in the hospital uh, just dying of gangrene and not moving, he started basically the first Paralympic sports where he would clear out the hospital beds, put people in wheelchairs and get them to start playing again. Many of these service men uh, were former athletes before they went to war, during the war. And what he found was the recovery levels went up by 80% by activity and action and moving and not sitting in a hospital bed. His name was Gutman. He was a wonderful doctor of rehabilitative medicine. And that led to the first Paralympic Games coming directly from his inspiration of one hospital playing another hospital during the war. In 1960, the first Paralympic Games were part of the Paralympic and the Olympic process. And really the idea was in the same spirit of international cooperation that the Olympics represent, the Paralympics were about international cooperation, but the empowerment of people who have different abilities. And that's really the word I love to use more than disability is how all of us have different abilities. And if you look at any of the Paralympics, which happens two weeks after the Olympics, it's organized by the level of ability. So for example, I am a number two sitting ping pong player out of a category of 10 different strength levels. The lowest level is a one. I'm in the second lowest level, two, wheelchair division. Then there's three, four, and five. And those are all determined by a doctor to determine how strong you are to move, to, to adjust yourself. So I'm not the lowest division, but I'm among the lowest. Um, and then there are five standing divisions from the lowest standing division, which is a six, and all the way up to a one. And the one is the highest level um, the least amount of disability. And all this is measured uh, scientifically. And um, I originally, when we did this book, Larry, I was so inspired by the stories in the book that I said, you know what? I need to become a Paralympian myself. I uh, started learning to improve my ping pong game, hired a coach, and uh, for two years practiced, and then went to the first qualification for the Paralympics, which are the US Open, 
this is 2003, and I lost every match, every match. And I went to the coach and I said, you know, I'm sorry I waste your time. And the coach said, well, actually, Artemis, you're the only person in your category that showed up, so you're on the U.S. team. <laughs> so I qualified and played and played. And um, then for the Pan American qualifications for the 2004 Paralympics, I um, uh, went to a tournament in Mexico City. The building that we were in the night before had been used for chicken fighting and there was blood all over the floor and <laughs> between the blood and the sweat, people were slipping, and falling and hitting their heads. And the top team in the world lost their best player to an injury. And so that person took pity on me and said, hey, why don't you join our doubles team and see if you can win a medal? And we won the silver medal. And that was my first and only victory in four years of international Paralympic competitions. But suddenly mm. I had qualified. Sadly, about a month before those uh, Paralympics, I fell and had a concussion, couldn't play, but I was uh, went to the Paralympics and we promoted our book, Larry, at that Paralympics, gave the book out to all the athletes. The book became a part of the United Nations attempt to create a new convention, people with disabilities that led to the show in 2005 at the United Nations. Uh, the book sold over 10,000 copies as a result of that and really was the marketing outreach tool for the United Nations to promote this convention. Like our ADA, this is an international convention for the rights of people with disabilities. That convention now has been passed by 170 countries. So it all started with the work you and I did with that book, the award to the head of state of Jordan, King Abdullah, because Jordan was among the most progressive countries working with people with disabilities. And then it just continued on for 20 years with No Limits Media and all the projects we've done to promote stories of courage, to promote stories of, of passion, but to also show the everydayness of being differently abled, both mental differently abled and physical differently abled. The United Nations defines about 20% of the world population is disabled. Well, I define that 100% of the Europe's population are differently abled, that we're all differently abled, and we change over our lives. As we age, we are able to do different things than we could at earlier ages in our lives. And that's really the spirit of my work and my passion. And then a year and a half ago, I decided, you know what? I'm not done with my ping pong career. I recently went to the US Open and won my division of a number two player in the, in the United States. I'm now the, the highest ranked number two player. And I'm on my way to the Pan American Games in 2023. If I do well at that tournament, I will qualify to go to the Paralympic Games in Paris in 2024 and you know i'd be 64 years old i'd be probably the oldest competitor to qualify but i'm passionate about doing it and if i lose it's still a great journey and if i win it will be the thrill of a lifetime to compete with younger players uh, who also have disabilities like mine but i have a little more experience with spins than many people so so you'll be known as the Paralympic Tom Brady of table tennis. That's right. The, the Forrest Gump 
of, <laughs> and Tom Brady of, of table tennis, you know, like 10,000 hours hitting the ball. Right. But I love it because in doing it, I also rehabilitate my muscles. For me, playing ping pong is, is not a stress on my muscles structure. I don't hurt myself. Um, now I play in a wheelchair so I don't fall down. And uh, I have two or three people who come to my home um, maybe twice a month to play. I have a coach that I go and work with. Um, so I'm passionate about making a difference and being an example that anyone with different abilities can become a Paralympian. Well, that seems to be the thread of your life from the time of the diagnosis to this moment that you seized a day and have lived it with passion and commitment and determination and discipline to keep going against all sorts of obstacles. And I think that's where the commonality is between people with disabilities or different abilities and the rest of the population. And that when they truly engage each other, which is what our hope is around work, that both sides will get a gift and see how we can promote each other and create innovation and insight into the human condition. So thank you for appearing on Inclusion and Work. And I hope to see you hitting that ping pong ball soon in the Pan American Games or? In Santiago, Chile. Santiago, Chile. Okay. Take care, Artemis. Thank you so much, Larry. Bye-bye.